Well, today we are going to return to our series entitled Living on Purpose. We took a, a break from it last week to uh, have a very specific lesson that we related to uh, the current pandemic, at least, or to our self-quarantine, at least. But we're going to return to living on purpose today. And if you remember, the whole idea of this sermon is for us to uncover what God's purpose is for our lives. We, we all at some point in time are searching for the meaning of life, and it is to be found in the one who created life. And we've seen throughout this series that we were made for His mission, that we were intended for His image, that we were planned for His pleasure. Today we're going to see that we were saved for His service. But I want to begin by telling you a story about a man in Meridian, Mississippi, who was going to bed one night when his wife noticed that the light was on in their garden shed out in the backyard. And after peering through the window for a little bit, he realized that there were a couple of guys who had broken into that shed and they were trying to steal his tools. So he called the police. And someone answered the phone and, and he explained what was going on. And, and the individual who answered the phone instructed him to lock his door, to stay inside, and a police officer would be along shortly, but that there was nobody immediately available. So the man hung up, he waited about 30 seconds, and he called back. This time he said to, to the one who answered the phone at the police department, he said, I'm the guy who called a few seconds ago about some thieves breaking into my tool shed. Well, you don't have to worry about them now because I just shot them all. And then he hung up. And within five minutes, three police cars, an armed response unit, and an ambulance showed up at his residence. And the police caught the burglars red-handed. But one of the policemen approached the man and said, I thought you said you shot them. And he said, I thought you said there was nobody available. Now, According to Snopes, this, this story is a tall tale, and, and we have to acknowledge this. No one should ever lie to the police in order to get a quicker response out of them. But this, this tall tale is worth sharing because nobody available is a phrase that should never be used in the kingdom of God. God's, is in, God's intention is that His children will always be available to serve others. And so let's begin today's lesson by considering what the Bible has to say about this subject of service. Now, right off the bat, I have to remind us that we are not saved by our service. We are saved by grace through faith because salvation is not something we can earn. That's the proclamation of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So we must acknowledge right off the bat that we are not saved by service, but we also must acknowledge that we are saved for service. You see, we often forget to read verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 when we read verses 8 and 9. So consider Ephesians chapter 2 in its entire context. Let's look at, let's look at verses 8 through 10 together again. Returning to Ephesians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 8, this is what you will read. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre pre prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, when God gave you a new life in Jesus Christ, He had an intention for that new life, that you would spend it 
serving others, that you would utilize it for good works in his name, good works that he had prepared beforehand for you. So we are not saved by our service, but we are saved for service. That's one thing we need to acknowledge that the Bible says about service, but another thing we need to acknowledge that the Bible says about service is that the servant identity is prevalent. In fact, when you journey through the New Testament, you'll see that the servant identity was the most prevalent identity adopted by the New Testament authors. Paul referred to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. He referred to himself as a servant of God in Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, Timothy shared this title of servant with Paul. James in James chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Jude in Jude 1 and verse 1, and John in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 all refer to themselves with the title of servant in the introduction to their letters. You can journey through the New Testament and you'll see that Paul referred to Phoebe in Romans chapter 16 and verse 1 as a servant. He referred to Apollos in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5 as a servant. Epaphras received that title of servant in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 7, and Tychicus in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 7. Now I want you to think. Paul could have referred to himself as an apostle or a missionary or an author of the New Testament, or half of the New Testament at least, Peter could have emphasized his identity as an apostle or an elder or the first gospel preacher. John could have emphasized his identity as an apostle as well, but also as an author of a biography of Jesus' life or the caretaker of Jesus' mother's mother. James could have emphasized his identity as a brother of Jesus or an elder of the church in Jerusalem or the guy who authored the letter that the, the meeting in Jerusalem sent out but they chose to emphasize servant. It doesn't mean they didn't use some of those titles, but servant was always prevalent. We mentioned this a few weeks ago in our Sunday night study. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul referred to himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter referred to himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I think it's worth mentioning that they chose to talk about their identity as a servant before they talked about their identity as an apostle. They mentioned servant first, and apostleship took a backseat to servanthood. That's how important being a servant is. So we've seen that, that, that being a servant is a prevalent identity in the New Testament. We've seen that we're not saved by our service, we're saved for our service. The other thing we need to notice that Scripture talks about is that all Christians are identified as servants who are indebted to God. The reason you are a servant is because you're indebted to God. One of the Greek terms translated servant in the New Testament is doulos. Doulos is not always translated as servant. Sometimes it's translated as slave. So Paul will say in Romans chapter 6 and verse 22 that those who have been set free from sin have become slaves of God. And Peter will challenge us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 16 to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You can see slaves and servants, the terms are used interchangeably. Now, 
we are, off, we are, are often offended by slavery terminology, and rightfully so. But under Mosaic law, slavery was often utilized as the means of debt reduction. One author explained it this way, In the Jewish culture, someone who fell on hard times could choose to sell himself as a slave to someone. If a person was in deep debt, he could sell himself to the person whom he owed money. It was often a wise and logical choice because your master was required to take care of your needs and treat you well. As a result, many viewed selling themselves as servants as a viable option to provide for their family and to survive. Now, contemplate that Jewish practice as you listen to these New Testament passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 and chapter 7, verse 23 both say you were bought with a price. You get to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, and it says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Then there's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, a, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Did you catch that? The Bible tells us that we were bought, that our debts were canceled, that we were ransomed. The only proper response we can have to the debt-canceling work of Jesus Christ is to become His servants. So when we put on Christ, we commit ourselves to a life of servitude. We become His servants because He redeemed us. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 12, verses 25-26, through 26, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, there are many job descriptions in the kingdom of God, but there is essentially just one role. We are all servants. So if you're not serving, then you're not living on purpose. Now I want us to consider today with the rest of our time, why service is so important, that, it, that it's the prevalent identity of the authors of the New Testament, that, that it's uh, expected of us to the degree that it is, that why is service so important? Well, first and foremost, service is important because it associates us with Jesus. In John chapter 13, we read a story near the end of the life of Jesus in which he observes his last Passover with the apostles. And in that moment, he washes the disciples' feet. Now, the unspoken details of the foot washing are worth noting here. They've traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. There were no paved roads back then. There were no concrete sidewalks, no wooden boardwalks, no asphalt drives. It was all dirt and sand. And there weren't any Nikes or Vans or Sperry's or other closed-toed shoes. It was all sandals. And here they arrive in a borrowed room. They arrive in a room that's not owned, or in a house that's not owned by Jesus or one of the apostles. 
And that's where they're going to spend this evening. And that detail that none of them own this home is noteworthy because typically the owner of the home is responsible for for fulfilling the duties of the host. One of those duties of a host is to ensure that the feet of your guests are washed. But since they are staying in a borrowed room, there's, there's no host among them. And no one volunteered to fulfill the foot washing responsibility. But they did argue about which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. You can see that in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Here they are gathered in this room, and they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. At least that's what the apostles are arguing about. Now with that argument as background music, Jesus gets up from his meal. He takes off his outer robe. He wraps a towel around his waist. He kneels down before his disciples and he begins washing their feet. Based on the response of Peter when Jesus got to him, we can tell that he was aware that Jesus shouldn't be doing this. That this was too demeaning of a task for Jesus. But Peter didn't offer to take Jesus' place. He just said, You shouldn't be doing this. And not one of the other apostles offered to take Jesus' place. What ends up happening is that in that moment, Jesus demonstrated service in the most unforgettable way. And I want you to notice in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 12, I want you to notice what Jesus said once he finished washing their feet. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 12 and going through verse 17 Jesus said, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, Jesus set the standard for service. And then he turned it on his disciples and said, if I'm doing this to you, then I expect you to do this to to others. And scripture asserts that we are expected to imitate Jesus in this matter. In fact, you can turn over to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, where Paul called on Christians to have the same mind or the same attitude as Jesus. And then in in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he goes on to describe what such a a Christ-like mindset entails. And he says this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You see, the same attitude possessed by Jesus that moved him to wash the feet of his apostles was the same attitude that moved him to become like one of us. And it's the same attitude that moved him to die for us at Calvary. As as one preacher pointed out, Jesus didn't just sit on his throne, point to a road called service, and say, I want all of you to go down that road. Instead, he led us down the path himself. I don't know how many of you um, really enjoy documentaries, but I've mentioned before that I love documentaries and I love sports. And right now, I'm enamored with the, uh, the, the documentary ESPN is putting on called The Last Dance that chronicles the, the last championship year of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, and Phil Jackson. 
I love that documentary. It comes on on Sunday nights. And uh, every, every Monday, I, I get to sit down and watch it. Now, here's the thing. I, I grew up in the era of the Chicago Bulls. I grew up in a time period when I got to experience that to its fullness, and, and I was a Jordan fan. I had his poster hanging over my bed. I had uh, Chicago Bulls uh, t-shirts that I love to wear. And watching the documentary has kind of taken me back to that era. You see, every kid who was a sports fanatic and whose formative years took place between 1988 and 1998 wanted to be like Michael Jordan, with the exception of Jack Thompson. Now, I've been reliving those emotions and dreams from my childhood as I watched ESPN's documentary about this last championship. And I, I remember a commercial, a Gatorade commercial that began airing around 1992. Gatorade had just landed a 10-year advertising endorsement with Michael Jordan, and they wanted to make a memorable commercial. Originally, they were just going to show highlights of Jordan dunking and drinking Gatorade, but the advertising executive in charge of the commercial wanted to do something iconic. So he pinned a little jingle and they shot footage of Jordan playing basketball with kids. And one of the most famous sports commercials of all time was born. And that jingle said, sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see, that's how I dream to be. I dream I move, I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. And that's how kids of my generation felt about the greatest basketball player of all time. But now I realize that's how I should feel about Jesus Christ. He's the one I must strive to be like. And, and if I want to be like Christ, then I have to be a servant because he came, as Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28 says, he came not to be served, but to serve like Christ. That should be my aim. And in one way in which I can be like Christ is through service because service associates us with Jesus. But that's not the only reason service is important. Service is also important because it is attractive to unbelievers. Now, the first century church understood this. The first century church understood that that uh, service to others was quite attractive. One of the ways the first century church served their community was by healing the hurting. For example, Peter restored the function of a lame, lame man's legs in Acts chapter 3. He, he healed a paralytic in Acts chapter 9. He also raised Tabitha back to life, which allowed her to continue her outreach of making clothes for widows in Acts chapter 9. In fact, the apostles were so well known for providing physical healing that Acts chapter 5 and verse 16 says, people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, we do not have the miraculous ability to heal diseases like the disciples did, but that does not mean that the church today has no role in healing. We have prayers to offer. We have assistance to lend. We have shoulders on which to cry. The first century church understood that their service to others by healing the hurting was attractive to lost people. But they also understood that they could engage in service through meeting the physical needs of the less fortunate. 
When Grecian widows were being overlooked in the church's daily food distribution program, the apostles selected seven men to oversee that outreach ministry in Acts chapter 6. And when the church in Antioch learned through a prophecy that a famine would strike Judea, they prepared a financial gift that was delivered to the elders of the Jerusalem congregation by a couple of guys named Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. Here's the point. The first century church demonstrated that service is attractive to lost people. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 45, we're told that the believers were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Just a couple of verses later, we learn in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 that they had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Later, after the apostles selected those seven men to oversee the food distribution program to widows, we're told in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now, I know service was not the only contributing factor to the growth of the church, to its, its uh, development of appreciation among non-believers, the favor of the people, that sort of thing. I know service was not the only contributing factor, but it definitely was a factor that brought about that appreciation of the lost, as well as the numerical growth of the church. See, service was attractive to lost people in the first century, and it still is attractive to lost people today. The Barna Research Group conducted a couple of surveys that reveal this. In one survey, adults who were not affiliated with a church were asked, what type of church is the most appealing to them? And one of the most common answers was a church committed to helping people outside the church who needed care and consideration. In another survey, adults were asked why they left, or excuse me, why they felt churches existed. One of the most common answers to this question was to demonstrate the love of God by helping the needy. Those surveys indicate that our society views the church as an agent of social change and institution that brings physical, emotional, and spiritual healing. And Jesus accepted this view of his ministry, at least. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And as we have just looked at in the book of Acts, the first century church accepted this view of their work. If we want to be like Jesus, if we want to be like the first century church, then we must operate based on the understanding that our service is attractive to those who are lost, to those who are outside of Christ. I remember a story I I heard about of a guy named Charles Plum, who was a, a Naval Academy graduate and a fighter pilot in Vietnam. After 75 combat missions, his plane was destroyed by a surface to air missile. Plum ejected from the plane and parachuted to the ground. Of course, he was captured and spent six years in a communist prison. He survived that ordeal and and then started later in life lecturing about the lessons he had learned from that experience. Now, one day when Charles Plum and his wife were sitting at a restaurant, a man at another table came up and said, you're Plum. You flew in Vietnam from the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk and, and were shot down, right? And Charles Plum said, how in the world did you know that? The man replied, because I'm the guy that packed your parachute. If that guy wasn't down in the belly of the ship doing his job of packing parachutes, then Charles Plum wouldn't be alive. Here's the point that I want you to take away from that. 
The service you render to an unbeliever could be the very thing that leads to their salvation. I believe that God has a parachute for you to pack. It may be the parachute of someone in your family or someone in your neighborhood or someone in your class or at work or possibly even a stranger you meet in public. But regardless of who it is, you're called to serve them so that as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We were saved for His service. Service matters because it is attractive to lost people. And the way we serve might just be the one thing needed to help lead them to Christ. So service is important because it is attractive to unbelievers. But service is also important because it is anticipated by God. When I use the word anticipated here, I'm really referring to expectation. That, that, that service is expected by God. Among the parables of Jesus, there's one story told that in two different forms. It's a story about a master and his servants. In Matthew chapter 25, it is commonly referred to as the parable of the talents, and in Luke chapter 19, it is commonly referred to as the parable of the menace. Regardless of which parable you read, the premise is the same. A master gives, gave his servants assignments, and at the end of the story, the, the drama surrounds whether or not the servants will be deemed faithful for having done what the master expected them to do. And as you may know, in both versions of the parable, one servant was deemed unfaithful because he was inactive. Here's what I want you to take away from those parables today. The thing that our master finds absolutely unacceptable when it comes to his servants is inactivity. This weekend, this weekend I discovered one of the unexpected consequences of sheltering in place. I was catching up on our family budget and discovered that during the month of April, we spent a grand total of $11 on fuel for our vehicles. Normally, we spend $200 or more a month. But, but this, this month, April, $11, it was a big savings for us. So that was good news. That means we haven't been using our cars that much. But then I went outside to get into my 18-year-old Yukon, and it wouldn't start. Not because it didn't have fuel, but because of some yet, as yet undetermined mechanical issue. And one of the few things I know about cars, especially old ones, is that they need to be used. They need to run. They don't like inactivity. And neither does God. The Bible indicates that when God saved us, His intention was to use us. And if you're choosing to be stored up rather than used then your spiritual life will begin to deteriorate much like my car. God designed you so that He could deploy you. God designed you to be active in acts of service. Yet far too many Christians act like showing up is all that should be expected of them. And to do anything more than that is going above and beyond the call of duty. But that's not how our master thinks. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10 through 10 says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And God's expectation is that you're going to serve to the best of your ability. Maybe that's why immediately after the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we encounter the parable of the sheep and the goats. 
That parable describes the day of judgment as an occasion on which the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne and separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Do you remember what the basis of that separation was said to be? It was whether or not they gave food to the hungry, welcomed the strangers, clothed the naked, and visited the sick and imprisoned. In other words, the parable of the sheep and the goats indicates that whether or not you served will contribute to the decision as to whether you will receive eternal life or go away into eternal punishment. There is an expectation God has of us that we will serve. In his book entitled The Fall of Fortresses, Elmer Bendiner, a B-17 navigator during World War II, provides a personal account of a, a bombing run over the German city of Castle. During this mission, they were bombarded with anti-aircraft fire, which was not unusual, but this time a shell penetrated their gas tank. They should have exploded there in the sky, but they didn't. They managed to safely return to their airbase, and the next day the pilot of that bomber asked the crew chief if he could have the unexploded shell as a souvenir. But then he learned that there wasn't just one shell in the gas tank. There were 11, and none of them had exploded. The shells were sent to the armory to be diffused, and when they went to diffuse them, they discovered that there was no mechanism inside of those shells to detonate them. Those shells couldn't explode. And inside one of the shells was a carefully rolled piece of paper with a scrawled message written in check. And that message said, This is all we can do for you now. Are you doing all you can do for God now? Now, my assignment is not to do it all. My assignment is to do all that I can do. And my reward will be to hear my Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. When it comes time for us to receive our eternal reward, we're going to be recognized as servants. So my question for you today, since servant is the identity by which you will be identified on the day of judgment, are you doing all that you can do right now? Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful again to, to worship you today, honored to be in your presence. We're thankful that we can turn to your word and be reminded of our responsibility. And today, Lord, we understand that we were saved for your service, that you created us to do good works. Lord, it is our prayer that despite our circumstances right now, that we will, um, we will honor that title, that we will live up to that expectation. And that we will do everything in our power to serve you to the best of our ability. We ask right now that you forgive us for those times that we have failed to be the kind of servant that you intended for us to be. And Lord, we ask for your help, your strength, your guidance to serve you in a way that brings you glory and honor, that attracts those who are separated from you, that associates us with your Son. 
Lord, we are grateful for the sacrifice he made. We're grateful that he chose to take the form of a servant. Now we ask that you help us to live a reciprocal life. It's through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we offer this prayer. Amen. If you don't think you've been living like a servant, then we invite you to reach out to one of us. Let us help you. Let us pray for you. Let us serve alongside you. If you haven't become a child of God yet, if you haven't adopted that identity that comes with salvation, then we encourage you to make a decision today to confess the name of Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins, and to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you'll reach out to one of our staff members or to one of our ministers, I should say, one of our elders, we can accommodate that request. We invite all of you to become servants today, and we challenge all of you to live as servants every day.